Uh, makes it more fun when I tell the story. Uh, growing up, one of her favorite games was Monopoly. It was my least favorite game, uh, Monopoly. And uh, <clears throat> the reason being is because inevitably I would land on her spots in which three-quarters of the board belonged to her. Uh, and I would have no money to pay. And so I didn't like that feeling. I thought this is too much like life. Where's, where's the fun in this? Uh, there's some parts of life that I don't enjoy, like being in debt. And, and so my main course of action at this point um, would be to say, all right, I'm not going to win this game, so I'm going to go out blazing and uh, involve taking the board and throwing it up in the air, scattering the pieces and running out of the room, all right? Uh, and so that, that was how I ended Monopoly. Uh, I, I never, I've yet to see the game actually come to an end. Uh, and I don't know if anybody really has. You just kind of quit. You're tired. And, and so if you're going to quit, you might as well have fun quitting, you know, right? Just throw the pieces. And, uh, yeah, but, but there were some things I did learn about Monopoly, about life. Uh, you know, sometimes you have to spend money to make money. Uh, you know, it, it's, you're going to win the game by, by doing that. Uh, chance happens whether you have a lot of money or no money. Um, and when it's all said and done, the, the biggest lesson is that when the game's over, thankfully, all the pieces go and, and get put back in the box. And, and that's it. It doesn't matter. If you had hotels on every spot, it goes back in the board. And it doesn't matter anymore. It goes back in the box. And, and that's what we learn about life. If we can get that, that in our head, that all our stuff ultimately gets placed in a box somewhere, and the things that we live and die for really don't matter. Have you ever gone to a landfill? I encourage you, go to a landfill sometime. Look at the stuff that's in the landfill. And you'll have a little uh, nostalgic time looking at a microwave that, you know, it's like as big as the oven. And you're thinking that, that you were, that, that day and time you were coveting to have a microwave placed in that looked just like that. And, and now it's in the uh, landfill. Or that, that huge TV that took up half of your room. And you thought, oh, that was like the epitome of success, having a TV like that. And you look at that thing, you're like, oh, man, that's just, a, you know, who does that? And it's in the landfill. The computers, the various luxury items. Uh, you go to a junkyard and you see uh, the cars that people saved and lived for. And now it's in the junkyard. It is, it is good for us every once in a while to go to a landfill and to consider... Consider all that we're living for could very well end up in a landfill someday. I mean, when, when you're dead, everyone's going to go through your stuff. And you're like, why did they keep this? This is ugly. And they won't know the story behind it, why we keep that thing that has such memory and we just don't want to throw it away. And, and they're not going to know that. And they're going to think, you know what? Somebody eventually is going to come in and, and get tired of the memories, the stories, and just going to go, you know what? I can't handle this. Let's just throw it all away. Let's sell it, get rid of it. And that's our stuff. That's our stuff that's going to be one day discarded. Can, you, can we get that? Do, do we understand this? We don't, do we? I, we I, you hear me, but it's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to live that way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 
Uh, we're going to look there and deal with the last part of the chapter. This is a, uh, talking about generosity, part three. We looked at chapter eight, most of chapter nine. We're, now we're going to look at the last bit. And in this letter, Paul is instructing the, ch- the church to say, look, you know, there's some people in Jerusalem. They're going through famine. It's going to be very difficult, very tough. Look, look at the example of Macedonia. They were in, in poverty, but yet they gave. They were generous. He says, consider this. You had made a pledge in Corinth one time earlier, and now Paul is just kind of holding him to that pledge and, and encouraging, challenging them uh, with following through with what they said they would do. Being a minister... Uh, to another group of believers somewhere else. And so, in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 through 10, we looked at it and we talked about the, the principle of sowing and reaping, the agricultural term that is there. We talked about this right before uh, we left to go uh, on a, on, uh, to Middle East. And, and so, we, we talked about how Jesus himself had this mindset of seeing himself, his whole body, his life, as a seed that is to be uh, put to the ground. But through that, through that death to himself, that God will do wondrous things and bearing fruit. And so that principle still lives out just as we go through the baptism and identifying our, our role with Christ, our walk with Christ. So too, generosity is that identification of saying we're dying to ourselves and we're living to Christ. And so giving becomes so much more than just meeting a need. It becomes a discipline of spiritual growth. It is a reflex. It is an effect of the gospel in our heart. And so with that thought in mind, uh, let's look through, uh, starting with verse 10, read through, or really verse 11, and read through verse 15. And as we complete this study uh, in this chapter of generosity and grace giving. So let's stand as we read this. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11 through 15. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saint, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You may be seated. If you will indulge me, I, just keep your Bibles open because I, I like to start at the end. Okay, We're going to focus on verse 15. And we're going to work our way backwards uh, and find the progression that's here. And then we're going to go back again forwards uh, and, and see the implications of this. And so verse 15, it, it's like he, he's given this argument of why being generous is a good thing, the benefits of generosity... What's being accomplished by this? And then he comes to verse 15. And it's like he's kind of putting it all in his head, Paul is. And, and he's just saying, you know what? I just can stop and praise God. You notice, does, what does your translation say at the end of verse 15? What kind of, what kind of punctuation do you have there? Is that an exclamation mark? He, he says, I just got to praise God for a second because I'm, I'm considering all these things. And it just makes me want to praise God for this inexpressible gift that God has given us. Uh, now, if you will, let's just talk about that for, for a second. Because he's considering Gentiles who are giving to Jews 
and Jerusalem because the Gentiles in Asia and Macedonia see themselves as one and family with the Jews of Jerusalem. And help you understand it, if you, could, if you will, just consider maybe um, Jews in Israel helping out Palestinians that are believers because they understand that we are before Israeli, before Palestine, we are believers in Christ and we have one king. And so a Jewish believer helping out a Palestinian believer and that, that, that mixture that there, media wouldn't know what to do with that. He says, that's the kind of thing that's going on right here in Paul's day. And he says, you know what? God is doing wondrous things that we can be all together, one family. This is an indescribable gift. Now, inexpressible gift. That word, that word, inexpressible gift, is the only time found in the New Testament describing the gift. Now, what is this gift he's talking about? And I just want to present this to you first. Let's consider God's grace gift. It is the foundation of giving, the foundation of generosity. He, he kind of sums it up when he's going through his, all his argument, just an emotional response. He goes back to the base. The base. God's grace gift. What, now, what is it he's talking about? He could be talking about salvation. He could be talking about uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, he could be talking about the grace that God is working in people's hearts. To get to this point across, but it is very likely that the grace that he has in mind is found in chapter 8, verse 9. Okay? Chapter 8, verse 9, because this is the most recent um, mention of grace that he's given uh, in identifying grace. And what is it that he says here? Well, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so you by his poverty might become rich. And he just kind of leaves it there and starts explaining, unpacking that, how that works with generosity. And so in verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 15, he comes all the way back full center and says, that is an inexpressible gift of God. All right, now let me just talk about that. What is the riches of Christ? What is the poverty? All right. First of all, you need to know that it's not money. He's not talking about money because Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 12 that life is not in the abundance of these things. That it's not about stuff. That's not what makes you rich and poor. In fact, in John 17, Jesus identified it as this. This is life. This is eternal life that you may know God. All right? So keep that idea in mind as he describes what's rich and poor. Who's rich and poor? He says... Rich, Jesus Christ. He is in the very presence of God. He is intimate with God. Eternity in the Godhead, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit. That uh, there was a perfect unity that is there, a union among them. And then considering us, who in our rebellion said, uh, pointed our nose up to God and said, we don't need you. So God says, okay, well, I'll give you what you want. And there has been a barrier by birth. Generation after generation where we do not know God. We are children of wrath, as the Bible describes us. Sons of disobedience. We are poor according to God. So what did, what did Scripture say? Well, this says that he became poor. How did Jesus become poor? How did that relationship with God that he's had for eternity get broken? <laughs> when Jesus was on the cross and he said... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is in that moment that Jesus has experienced poverty in his life that 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 relationship has been snapped because all of your shame, all of your sin for 
for this time, all to the past, all to the future, multiplied by generations over, by people all over the world. Jesus became that sin in that moment. He became poor. Why? Well, the Bible says in Isaiah 53 that God was pleased to do this to his son so that we might be right with him, so that we could become rich. You see, the basis of all of our life is not that we're good people. Do you understand that? We're not good. You're not good. It doesn't matter how many times you go to church. That's not where it happens. That's not where strength comes. And one of the things we're learning in, in Taekwondo is that we yell to develop spiritual strength. And I'm thinking, you know what? I don't think that works. I'd be yelling all the time. I get spiritually weak, you know? And that's not how spiritually things work through yelling outside. It happens through God putting strength in our life, not because I'm good, not because I keep doing good stuff and I meet some moral code. Salvation lies in the sheer fact that God gives it to us and ruins our pride in so doing. That's our problem is our pride. And so what does God do to ruin it? He gives us something. He gives us something. And so he says, you know what? That, that salvation work, that thing of grace, that thing of Jesus Christ who became, who was rich, who became poor so that I might become rich. It is an inexpressible, indescribable gift that has so many implications. And it's like Paul is just seeing one of the implications being that Gentiles and Jews who normally hate one another now are united because of the gift of Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful thing. One of the things that our church ought to be and any church ought to be is a place where cultures collide. A place where the old and the young meet together. The places where the Caucasian and the non-Caucasian meet together. To say that we are united not because of our cultures, not because of my skin, not because of my age, but because of Jesus Christ who gave us a gift. And we worship God that way. It is inexpressible. It is indescribable. And that's fleshed out in how we support one another. So, i got to keep on going. God's grace gift. But go one verse up. Verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. I would just bring to you that this grace gift is God's surpassing grace gift. You know, surpassing is the idea of a river flooding over its banks. It's going beyond the normal limits. What is the grace of God surpassing? Well, God's grace, the fact that Jesus became poor so that I might become rich, what is it doing? It is changing my heart because I am normally a selfish person and I look at life from a selfish perspective. That's me. That's you, isn't it? Am I, am I the only one? And I'm your pastor? <laughs> yeah. We're all like that, aren't we? That's our tendency. And we look at life and look at people as to what they can bring to our pleasure. I've got good news. There is a grace of God that can surpass your materialism. A grace of God that can surpass your selfishness. A grace of God that can save you from yourself. God's surpassing grace. And we talk about what the amazing grace is. What's so amazing about the grace of God is that it changes my heart. It has the ability to transform me from the inside out. Now, why is that important? Well, 
according to the Barna Report, the average American Christian gives 2 to 3%. Average American Christian, American Christian, American follower of Christ, American believer in the things of God, gives an average of 2 to 3%. And that's the New Testament. The Old Testament, you know, the standard was 10%. And we are under grace. And so it's eking out 2 to 3%. I would just present to you that there's grace that needs to be done in our life, needs to be done in our work. And so let's keep on reading. Let's, let's go up. If you go reading up to verse 13, by the approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission. Now, again, notice this, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for others. Listen, God's surpassing grace gift compels our confession. What is it that makes us confess Jesus as our Lord? What is that worked in Shona's life to say, I want to be baptized before a couple hundred plus people? I want to do that. Why? Why does someone want to do that? It is because God has given us his gift. Of Jesus Christ. It's because he became poor so that we might become rich. It is something that compels a, convi- a confession in us. It's not that we have to get saved. There is something that's within our heart that says, I want Jesus. I want him. I want him as my Lord. I want him as my king. I want him as my father. I want him as my friend. And I want his ways. You see, that's the thing about a Christian. God does, by his grace, a work in their life. So that what may have started as a have to becomes a want to. I want to share the word of God. I want to pray. I want to study his word. I want to do these things. I want to be a part of God's family. It's not that I have to. If I have to, then it shows evidence that God is not working in my heart. He changes who I am. And now he compels He compels a confession that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Flowing. It is flowing from your confession. Now what's flowing? Well, in verse 13, God's surpassing grace gift compels our submission generating confession. All right? A submission generating confession. Notice what it says there uh, that because of submission flowing from your confession. Here is the idea that's being taught here. Those who profess Christ, Christ live Christ. You do not live Christ, you do not profess Christ. It is as simple as that. And I know it's popular to say, well, you know, I, I was baptized earlier in my life. I walked down the aisle, I talked, and I had a prayer. I prayed the prayer. I asked God to forgive me of my sins. And I trusted Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I, I did these things. And that was 10 years ago. And I haven't done anything with Christ since then. Okay, get this. Verse 15, God has given you an inexpressible gift. And so your expression of the gift of God is nothing. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. It, what is inexpressible in the nature of gift flows out in our life, changing us on the inside. The, the confession is a confession that's not just merely with our words. It is confession that is consistent with our heart, with our lifestyle. It flows out. And so if you want to come to me and say, Pastor, you know, uh, things are going bad and I'm scared. I'm thinking life might come to an end. Once saved, always saved, right? What do you mean by once saved? One saved, is that, are you saying that you made a profession? Or are you saying that you're living out your confession? 
You cannot separate that. And that's the problem with many Baptist theologies is that we have this false theology of separating that, saying that we can have a profession and not living out a confession. It's just not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And so what he says is you're flowing. This submission, this obedience is flowing out of a confession that is being compelled by God's grace gift. All right. So the idea is not to say, oh, well, you know, what? I need to give more. I need to, be, I need to live my life more so that I can be right. No, what needs to be done is that you have a heart grasped by God's grace gift. It's not to have more giving in your heart and mind. It's just having Christ filling up your heart and mind. It always goes back to him. And so, let's keep on reading here. Going verse 11 and 12. He says, You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving in God. For the ministry of the service, not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also flowing, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. All right. So, let me add to this sentence, all right? The sentence is getting longer. God's surpassing grace gift compels generosity from a submission-generating confession. Notice verse 11. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving God. What, is, what does obedience look like? What does submission look like out of this confession, out of this grace gift? What does it look like? Well, what Paul is saying it looks like is called generosity. Generosity is an evidence of God's grace working in our heart. It is a very specific expression of obedience. It compels generosity. Now, notice something verse 11 here. I, I, it just caught my attention. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. You will be enriched for what purpose? For generosity. You will be enriched in every way. For what purpose? For generosity. It is at this point where I am at a great disadvantage. Because I am speaking a message that you will find contradictory with thousands of images you'll see today. All right? You flip on the TV, what's it what's about? You got to buy something, right? It's Christmas time. Our whole society is working its full marketing engines toward this one purpose that the reason you have money is so that you can buy gifts for yourself. For your own yeah, they say it's for your wife. They know that if, you, if you're in there for your wife, you're going to buy something for yourself because that's how guys are. All right? They know that. They know that. All right? We see it in our kids. We see it in us. We go buy it for someone else. and Oh, yeah, I got this for myself. You know? And so the, the whole marketing is about life is better now because you've got something for yourself. And the whole reason, the whole reason, the fact that you, the blessing of living in America, the blessing of having a job, the blessing of having bonuses, the blessings of having any increases, the blessing of all these things is so that you can make your life better. All right? I'm, I'm hitting very close to the American dream here at this point. Somewhere along the way, it clicked in, me, in my mind thinking, you know what? Every time I get an increase, my first thought is, now I can make my lifestyle better. 
And I thought, wait. And when I realized that's what I was thinking, I thought, oh, where did that come from? That didn't come from the Bible. I just thought that was normal. That was expected. That's what everybody does. Every time you get a bonus, every time you get an increase, a promotion of some sort where there's more flow, more resources coming, inheritance comes, I'm like, ah, oh, yes, now I can always get this and which I always wanted. I can increase my comfort, my lifestyle. Now, here's the problem with that idea. It's verse 11. If you don't like, if you, if you like that, go ahead and just get your, your pencil out or your, your pen and mark through verse 11. It really is going to cause problems with that way of thinking. All right? What does it say? You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. Why does God enrich for generosity? So that we can be a blessing to others. Martin Luther has said, I have had many things in my hands that I lost. The things that I placed in the hands of God I still possess. When he's writing this instruction, he's not doing it to be a party pooper. You're thinking, I really want, bam, 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 to make my life easier. But I read this in the pastor, man, God just really must hate me. I mean, really. I'm coming in here and the pastor happened to be talking about that at this time. Just check out and call me wrong, and that way you can go on with your life. And, and we view God as a party pooper and just robbing us of things that we really want. But what we need to understand is that God is giving us life by giving us this instruction. He says, life is not in the abundance of things. I'm trying to help you out. I'm trying to save you from a pit, from making your life nothing but future landfill fodder. I'm trying to prevent that in your heart. And so he says, I want you to understand that this is generosity and that when you give to the Lord, it's th- there are things that will be coming in your life. There's a joy. There is an understanding of a heart turned toward heaven, toward the things of eternity, toward the things of God that no downturn in economy can take away from you. Now, um, I think about this. that McGregor has said, a selfish man is never rich. His day is long as long as his neighbors, yet he has no leisure except for his own amusements. No sympathy or concern beyond his own perplexities. No strength but to fight his own battles. And no money except for his own needs. What haunts his mind at every turn is the dread of having too little for himself. Is that what's always haunting your mind? That you have too little for yourself. Is that really what life is to be about? And the scriptures is saying, Jesus is saying, No. Life is not about these things. Now, let me just talk about the effects. We're going to go now work forward like we most normally do, going from verse 11 down to verse 15. Let's look at the effects. If we believe that our generosity or God's surpassing grace gift compels generosity from a submission generating confession, what's the end result? Well, first of all, notice in verse 11, our generosity produces thanksgiving to God. He says, notice, he just says, you will be rich in every way for all your generosity which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, let me just make a little clarification here. We read this passage and we think, man, okay, so if I'm generous, God's going to give me more because he's going to enrich me in every way. So the system here is I'm generous, God will give me more. And so, man, I've got a whole new financial strategy. All right? Yes and no. All right? Okay. Malachi 3.10 is a good verse. I challenge you to look it up, study it, consider it, pray it, and, and do it. Uh, Malachi 
uh, is a passage that has meant a lot to me in my life. And, and basically it's a dare. God says, I dare you. Trust me with your resources. See if you, if you honor me with your resources. See if I will not bless you in return in essence. He says, I dare you. So I, I took him up in, in several different ways um, through this. And um, one, one way, many years ago, um, we had a, a professor come. It was about this time of year. Gearing up for Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which is our offering that we give to go to international missionaries. And uh, I had a professor come, a missions professor, Dr. Cal Guy. Dr. Cal Guy was a man in his 80s, and he had influenced many of the leaders of the day and time, and, and still the leaders today in our uh, international work. He's, he's been influenced by Dr. Cal Guy. And um, had a class with him. So I had him come to, to speak to our church. And I just did a tremendous job speaking and sharing. And, and so later on, we were sending him a check, thanking him for coming and taking his time out and, and um, speaking. And, and so we, we gave him a little honorium. He sent a letter back, giving us the check back. Because I, I, I don't want this. I don't need this. But he said, I, I've given you another check. Um, <laughs> this check was for $1,000. He says, I want this to go toward your international, uh, your Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Now, this is a man in his 80s. He's retired, okay? He's, um, he works a little bit at seminary, and they don't pay him much. But then he wrote in this letter, he says, I've learned that if I want to reach my goal of giving $10,000 to a Lottie Moon Christmas offering, I have to start early. Now, at that time, our church's goal, our entire church's goal for a lot of you, Christmas offering was $3,000. And <laughs> my goodness, he has just done what a third of what our whole church did. Is it because he had so much more money? No. In fact, he had a good bit less money than most people in our church. The difference is that God had done a work in his heart for generosity. And that God just used that to convict me in my life. And so my wife and I talked about it, and we thought, you know what? Here this man is, he's not a member of a church, and he's out giving me. I'm the pastor. I'm the leader. And this guy's out giving. And it just convicted me about trusting God. And so my wife and I set aside a sum where we would give for a Lottie Moon Christmas offering more than what we felt comfortable doing. Um, but I remember Malachi 3.10. I thought, okay, God, we'll see. We'll see. Help us meet our needs. Next year rolls around. Unexpected amount of money comes in. Now here's, check out the math on this. What we had given the previous year was 10% of what God gave in return. Multiplied it ten times over unexpectedly. So that the generosity for the next year was so much more. I'm thinking, Lord, wow. And so now all of you are sitting there taking your pens out like, all right, I can do that. Now let me assure you that the next year we did not get ten times amount of what we'd given. So is God not true in his word? Oh, he is so true. He is so true. Because let me tell you what God did. 
What he did in my heart for the next year and for the years since is, is to have a truth in my life, in my heart, to know that when God pricks my heart to give, that I can give. God birth generosity. And you can't put a price tag on that. And so when we talk about enriching in every way, it's not necessarily all the time financial. In fact, he may do that just to teach you the greater riches of having generosity in your heart. And so there may be fewer and fewer amount of bucks in my my name, but the generosity grows. In fact, we find here that he's, he understands that the Jewish believers, they were in poverty. Being a believer does not equal riches. And he had shared with the people in Corinth, he says, you know what? There's going to be coming a day and time where you won't have money, despite how generous you are, and you're going to count on the generosity of others. So the real riches isn't dollar marks, but what we learn. I found that money will drive me away from God, or it can be used to bring me to God. Which one is it doing in your life? And so our generosity produces thanksgiving to God. And so when we do this, needs are being met and people are praising God, thanking God, because there's generosity in a believer's heart. Notice, this is, this is the, the idea of, of being generous, of knowing that what comes our way, what's enriching us, is not for ourselves, but for generosity. And I think this is a good contrast to Luke chapter 12, verse 19. You remember the story of Luke chapter 12 where Jesus gives a parable after being asked about dividing up inheritance. He says, you know what, consider this man. He had these barns and he had this food and, and, and life was doing being well for him. He's getting plenty of, of increase from his crops. And he said, what am I going to do with all this excess? Uh, he says, what, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This is the typical American dream. I've got riches. I've been enriched so that I can live a more comfortable life. Let me just give you God's, Jesus' thought on the American dream. Verse 20. But God said to him, fool. <laughs> you know, that's bad when God calls you a fool. I, I don't see that anywhere. It, it, you know, Psalms, Proverbs talks about being a fool. But here, God calls someone a fool, all right? Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you understand that we are enriched for generosity? Our generosity produces thanksgiving to God. C.S. Lewis has written, written this in, the, in the, um, his essay, The Weight of Glory. We are half-hearted creatures. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like ignorant children who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I just want to challenge this. Don't be so pleased with the, the latest and greatest CD, the TV, the computer, uh, the, the car, the boat, the house, the appliances. Don't set your sights so low. You're making mud pies in the slum when God's saying, I'm giving you real joy. Give me real joy. Now, this Thanksgiving, he says, verse 13, by the approval of this service, they will glorify God. The effect of this, of generosity, produces thanksgiving. Our thanksgiving glorifies God. They will glorify God. We were um, 
we were in Kenya back in 2000. We went to Kenya 10 years ago, and we were visiting with Maasai believers and, and visiting their homes, and uh, uh, a group of pastors were there, and they kind of hosted us, uh, having a dinner for us, and they had uh, goat, uh, roasted goat, uh, ugali, and some other things, um, and it was good. It was good goat, man. We were eating that thing and sucking it, and it was, I mean, good, all right? Um, and then we noticed that afterwards, they, they collected uh, the leftovers, and they put it all on a plate, and they took it to another room. I said, who's in the other room? The pastors. What are they doing with our meat? Are oh, they serving it to them? <laughs> they were eating our leftovers. You know what that does to heart? That just tore me down. I didn't know what I should have done. Should I have ate more of it or should I have ate less? What was, what was the proper expression of this type of service, this type of ministering? I mean, they were giving to people who clearly had plenty to eat. We weren't hurting. But because of their generosity, they wanted to honor us. And all I could do, it wasn't enough to say thanks for the food. It just doesn't cut it there. I mean, hugging him and all that, it just didn't cut it. All I could do is say, God, you've done a work. I glorify you, God. Because that type of sacrifice demands that I acknowledge that it's God at work and I glorify him. They will glorify God by our generosity. Now, we keep on going. Because of their glorifying God. And, and that's what giving does. Giving ultimately glorifies God. And that is the whole point. And so we go down to verse, uh, verse 13 and 14. The approval of the sacrifice of this service that will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God among you. Because of this end result, because we are the ones ministering to people's needs, they thank God, they glorify God, their hearts are knitted to our hearts, they long for us and they pray for us. The glorification of God is joined with desirous hearts of prayer for us. Let me ask you, what, did, what would it mean to you if in your struggle, and I'm, I'm going to turn last week's sermon on you. This is, this is what um, Drew brought to our attention of what we are doing for believers in the Middle East. But let me turn it on you. What if in your struggle of meeting needs and dealing with excesses that God has given you, and you've got something that you're weighing between, whether something for yourself, some measure of comfort, are using these resources for the kingdom of God in some way. And you're struggling with that. You're dealing with that. I mean, if you give it toward the kingdom of God, you will be marked as a fool, as an idiot, and everybody will say, what on earth? Why are you doing such things? If in that moment of time, 
How would it encourage you to know that there are believers in Africa, in China, in the Middle East, in India, around the world who have been touched by the resources of believers in America who have had their hearts knitted to believers in America because of that, but who are praying for believers in America who will not bow down to the idols of materialism and that they are praying on your behalf that you will have your heart set on kingdom. How will that change your decision? You see, where believers in the Middle East deal with persecution and they're counting on people to pray for them, counting on Americans to pray for them, so that they will not bow down to fear and stand firm on Christ. They, in turn, are praying for us that we deal with the temptation of materialism, bowing down to these idols, and they're praying that we will have a vision of Christ and that we'll hold on to them. How does that change? Knowing. And I can assure you, you don't have to wonder. I've heard with my own ears, believers, in Belarus, in the Middle East, in China, in India, saying that they will pray and do pray, not just for the church in America, but they pray for Green Pines Baptist Church. And one of the things they pray for is that we will not bow down to materialism. That's the effect. The glorification, glorification of God is joining us in desirous prayer for God to do His surpassing grace in our life. You see, it all flows back to the idea that God who is rich made Himself poor that we might become rich, that we might know what it means to know Him. And that this grace gift is a surpassing grace gift, surpassing our sin, our selfishness, our inwardness. And that this surpassing grace gift compels our confession and which in turn generates submission, which in turn produces generosity, and which in turn has the effect of giving thanksgiving to God and in thanksgiving God to bring glory to God and in bringing glory to God, joining us, knitting our hearts and desires prayer for one another and in considering the fact that there are Arab believers who are praying for Americans who Americans are praying for Jews who in turn are praying for uh, people in East Asia who in China are praying for uh, those in India who in turn are praying for people in Africa and we're not not knitted by our president we're not knitted by land by blood by geographical limits we're knitted by the fact that we have one Lord who made himself poor that we might be rich that is an inexpressible gift of God. And that's why you see an exclamation mark at the end of chapter 9. Do you get it? You know, one of, the, one of, one of my favorite stories, not just Christmas, but is uh, um, the Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens. He's a good, some of you may not like him, but he was a believer. And his writings were to demonstrate the gospel. Uh, and so here Ebenezer Scrooge is, calloused, greedy, cynical, complainer, miserable, miser is a good name for him. And then, of course, the story is a radical change takes place. He's described as he went to church. He walked about the streets. He watched the people purring to and fro patted children on the head and questioned beggars, looked down the kitchens of houses and up to the windows and found that everything could yield him pleasure. 
He had never dreamed that any walk, that anything could give him so much happiness. And the final page, some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, and if any man alive possessed this knowledge, he did. What was it that changed him? Was it not the fact that he looked at the past, he looked at the present, and he looked at the future from an eternal perspective? I think the message that Charles Dickens was trying to tell us is that God has given us an inexpressible gift of grace that is surpassing even Ebenezer Scrooge. And God bless him, even Ebenezer Scrooge. You get that? So if we live our whole life in Christmas season and we believe the lie that Christmas is for ourselves and making our life better, making our lifestyle better, you've missed out on the entire heart of the Christmas story. It is the inexpressible gift of God with the end result ultimately of thanksgiving and glory to God. And watch what God does with that. I encourage you. One of the one of the best books that brings out scripture on this subject is this book, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. As you can see, it's very small, not intimidating at all. It's not even, you know, print fairly large. Um, Eighty some pages. We have given this out times past, I think in Father's Day another time. We do still have some more books left. Um, if you don't have this book, you'd like to read. If if you'll read this book by taking it, you're making a, a pledge. You'll read it. All right. Um, we don't need it just sitting on our shelf. Uh, we can do that here. Um, so, if you'd like to do that, you will have them available to you for your further studying uh, on this subject. But I'm going to tell you, there's joy in the giving, and you cannot outgive what the Lord does. So let's pray.